Hello, welcome back to another edition of NEMT Radio. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence, and uh, we're continuing the discussion with uh, uh, a number of great clinical uh, experts, physicians, and Today, I have one of those with me as our guest, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Sam uh, Galvano, who is uh, talking to us from Maryland, and uh, I think from Hopkins. And uh, sir, welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to be on this podcast. So first of all, uh, give us a little bit uh, of your backstory, uh, more importantly, where you started, and we've had the pre-discussion, so I know what you're going to say, but I think everyone needs to hear this, and where you are now. Sure. Well, my my first introduction to any form of medicine was as a ski patroller, uh, as actually, and then uh, an EMT, and then eventually uh, what we call a cardiac, resp- uh, a cardiac uh, CRT in the state of Maryland, and then a paramedic. So that was all done right before and then actually during the first part of my medical school. So my, my background is firmly routed in pre-hospital care. And in fact, uh, that's been the, th- the, um, the thesis topic for my PhD that I earned at Hopkins back in 2012. You know, today I work as a anesthesiologist and an intensivist. And I'm also uh, boarded in an EMS, which was a tough board to get for someone who didn't do the fellowship. But I did get through that because I felt like it was important. And, you know, my true heart and desire is always in the pre-hospital realm. I believe that's the best place where we can start doing critical care. Of course, I get to see the results of all that at the very back end once they hit the intensive care unit or the operating room. But I really believe it all starts in the field. And that's why I'm uh, very, to this day, uh, try to be as involved as I can in pre-hospital medicine. Um, whether as a provider myself and our GO team at Shock Trauma or as a volunteer medical director or helping to write this fantastic textbook that you have here for the NAM. Real honored to write this chapter on Shock. Great. We also have a number of uh, military listeners. Uh, we, of course, uh, as you know, we have an award each year for our military medic of the year. So you're involved in that too. So why don't you also join that dot for us too? Sure. So I, I am involved in the military. I have been since 1997. I started off as a general medical officer and then a flight surgeon. I was on active duty for that. Got to go and fly in F-16s and all kinds of cool planes. But for the last, uh, really the last majority of my career to this date, I'm still in the reserve as a, a colonel uh, stationed at the Pentagon. Now focusing on a lot of our policy work, but you know, also say that lots of uh, building lots of educational products as well, which include a pre-hospital component. But yes, I am still in the Air Force Reserve and still proud to serve. I hope I can do that for a couple more years. We'll see. And uh, another thing that I enjoy doing. Thank you for your service. Uh, it's very much appreciated. And uh, now you mentioned the textbook. Uh, PHTLS uh, is a very well-respected uh, publication. It's been around for a long, long time. Um, you're an author uh, of one of the chapters. And so just describe uh, what you've authored for us, please. Well, the chapter that we were asked to contribute to in this latest edition was a chapter that I'm very, very honored to honestly write. And that is because uh, the previous author was one of my mentors, Dr. Craig uh, Manifold, who passed away in recent years, uh, unfortunately, prematurely. Very big hero in the EMS community. Another military person actually retired at the one star level and rightfully so. So really honored to write the chapter on shock. 
which was previously called the pathophysiology of life and death, which I think I think is a completely appropriate term for this uh, this condition, which is a big a big part of what we do in the pre-hospital environment. Great. Well, let's start at the beginning then. If I asked you as a let's I'm the layperson and I'm asking you to define shock. How would you do that? Well, shock is going way, way back into the 1800s. It was talked about as widespread loss of oxygen delivery that wound up damaging the cells. In other words, inadequate perfusion to the cells, not enough blood supply to the cells. And that definition has not changed a ton. It's still true. I think where we've turned our attention is that shock really starts at the cellular level, which we can't see, and we can't detect very easily in the pre-hospital arena. So that's a tricky thing for medics. And hopefully we can talk a little bit about that. That's certainly, I think, the focus of future efforts is to do, uh, to innovate better techniques for early diagnosis of shock, because that's where we want to detect it, to stop it and halt it. But that's the earliest definition, and I, it still does hold true at the at the macro level. We see this as a patient who loses their blood pressure. Uh, we have a case scenario in the chapter. We talk about a motorcycle crash where a patient winds up being very tachycardic with a low blood pressure. That's a patient that's it's you know not too hard to figure out that they're probably in pretty big trouble. The trickier part is the patient who's not as maybe maybe equally banged up, but compensating. And so, um, but to get to your quest, back to your question, shock is really defined as inadequate perfusion to the vital organs and cells. That's really the, the bottom line definition. And, uh, but to really detect that early on is a challenge. So when you are training and educating paramedics and you've been there yourself, um, you know, what are the, what are the, what are the key learning points? Uh, what are, is there, is there a mnemonic? What can we remember to actually help us identify and then react and then treat uh, shock as, as as we discover it we're first on scene it's normally dark there's a flashlight involved somewhere um, <laughs> what's what's the process yeah the process we we ha- we do have several mnemonics that have been endorsed uh, you know that we we can use to actually apply the biggest thing is first of all identifying if we're talking about traumatic shock there's first of all there's lots of different types of shock we have the one that I think mo- will resonate with most folks that is really kind of obvious is when a patient has hemorrhagic shock, they, they're bleeding. It's not always obvious. We have to look for it, but we also have to do immediate interventions to stop it. The other types of shock, which we can talk about a little more too, if, if you'd like, if we have time, are other forms of distributive shock, neurogenic shock. But all of these wind up with the common final pathway of inadequate perfusion to the vital organs or cells and cells, really not just the organs, but the cells that constitute those organs. So when you roll up on the scene, flashlight in hand, dark, raining, misty, can't see much, really unclear as to what the mechanism might have even been. um, The first thing is really your patient assessment. And there are some things that we teach in both the military and in the civilian practice, and we've, we've provided some of these um, mnemonics in our assessment. You know, there's always the primary survey, which we've historically used as ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. One modification to that that we write about in this chapter, which others have as well, we didn't invent this, is XABCDE. And the X stands for control of severe external bleeding. So before we even get to the airway, if we see someone exsanguinating bleeding, 
blood spurting out or soaking through their their trousers or garments, that needs to be stopped. And we we have done a lot of education in recent years with tourniquets. We're you know we'd rather just have it applied than not. We can always take it off the trauma center, and we've seen a lot of help with that over the years. And not as much harm as we would have historically thought. But that X is the first part. Now, if we take that, I'll talk about another mnemonic we use more in the military, but just sticking with that X, A, B, C, D, E. X for control of a severe external bleeding. A, airway management. It's airway management. That doesn't mean intubation. That means an oral airway, maybe a nasal pharyngeal airway, maybe just doing good bag valve mask ventilation. One of the things I teach as an anesthesiologist to our pre-hospital clinicians, as well as advanced physicians, surgeons, critical care, EM folks, is that you really have to, it's all about airway management. You really have to manage the airway. It doesn't mean you instantly have to intubate them, but you'd have to manage that. So that's one of the focuses with that A. And part of that, an extension of that is breathing, maintaining ventilation and oxygenation, and then getting back to circulation and assessing perfusion. And then finally, disability and then exposure. We always want to try to keep our patients warm and prevent that part of the, the triad of um, hypothermia from, from setting in. Just one other quick comment. Another way we to look at this in the military, they use the March mnemonic, M-A-R-C-H. M is for massive bleeding, just like the X-A-B-C-D-E. This time it's just an M and it's the same thing application of some tourniquet, hemostatic dressing, or something to stop that massive bleeding. And then moving into airway and our respirations, just like breathing, and then circulation, just like the C and the A, B, C, D, E. And then because our military folks oftentimes have a lot of, our casualties oftentimes have a lot of head injuries and hypothermia, which is kind of like the exposure we talk about in the ABCDE, really assessing for and trying to make sure we're cognizant of maintaining goals for head injured patients as well as preventing hypothermia. So that's the March mnemonic in the XABCDE. So I, that's just one way we can we can start to approach the assessment. It doesn't tell us all the time what the cause of the shock is. That's a little trickier, but at least this gives us some immediate interventions and things we can pay attention to rolling up on the scene to start to stabilize the patient. Great. Any any trauma, and I always say this, that uh, trauma is a surgeon's injury. Our job is to uh, to get on and get off. Um, we're not right. talking, we're, I'm not talking to our, our colleagues that tell us to stay and play, stay and treat for cardiac arrests. Um, this is really the fact is that uh, you yourself, uh, Sam, need to get stuck in there and, and, and treat. Um, so what about timeliness of treatment on scene? You know, obviously, you know, we, we, we can talk about the platinum 10 minutes, the golden hour and everything else, but, uh, you know, talk about sure. time. Time is, it's different for every patient. I think an overall paradigm, at least in the United States, is that we really do believe, and we, we've got really good algorithms, not, not, which we don't really talk about in this chapter, but I know they're ch- talked about in other chapters of PHTLS, but really the timeliness, you're absolutely right, uh, Rob. It's getting a patient to a trauma center is the key. It doesn't mean they're going to go back to the operating room every every time within 30 minutes, but there may be other things we can do in the trauma bay or the emergency medicine ward, emergency department, where we can actually uh, perform further interventions that help stabilize and, and reverse the shock or, or halt it. But the timeliness in the United States, most paradigms for trauma are load and go. I would say it's not load and go, though. It should be load and treat in route. And that's really where 
for the first part of my career, I really looked at the helicopter as one of the mediators to getting to getting patients to trauma centers. But it's really more than that. Certainly helps with the time component for patients that are injured distal to a trauma center. But what we really need to look at is what are we doing from point A to B? Are, are we blood transfusions? Are we doing other advanced techniques to stop the bleeding? Are we doing plasma in the helicopter? You know, there's lots of things we can do from point A to B in route to, as you mentioned, definitive care. But definitive care in the, in the field, it just very difficult to do. There's some folks, and you know there's folks in your country that do a really good job with London Hems and other folks that are, have a little bit more at capability. But even for those systems, you're just like you said, getting them to a trauma center is the key. And at least for trauma, that's really where we want to focus. So it's 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 um, load and treat is what I would say and what many others would say, not just load and go. We do want to keep things moving. We don't want to stop at the side of the road and spend 20 minutes trying to get an IV. We'd rather just move and try to do that in route as effectively as we can. So you, you mentioned treatments on the way. Um, you know, whole bloods are an emerging thing uh, in, mm-hmm. in the EMS right now. And, there's, and, and again, we've done a lot of talk about that. Um, you mentioned plasma, and actually, back in back in my day in, in Virginia, we were involved in the, in the freshly thawed, uh, reconstituted mm-hmm. uh, plasma trial. Um, if time allows, what do you think about those things? Sure. I uh, well, I'm excited about them. I first of all, I really like the Pittsburgh study by uh, Jason Sperry, Frank Guyatt, and they really, I mean that that study I think is one of the most important studies for pre-hospital trauma care, where they uh, wound up giving plasma. Saw some pretty remarkable differences in terms of mortality. Certainly, think that needs. It was a multi-center trial. It wasn't just Pittsburgh. A very well done trial, though. And we talk about this a little bit in the chapter. You know, we talk about some hemostatic interventions we can do, not just tourniquets, but, you know, what can we actually give in the way of blood products and such. And so we get into a lot of details on that and even talk about the modern clotting cascade, which is really the process of how a clot forms. But just to back that up a little bit, you know, with a patient who's hypotensive and tachycardic, and we, we do present just like we do in advanced trauma life support. We basically, with permission, have the table from advanced trauma life support there, which we've all learned as paramedics and even EMTs, which is class one through five for hemorrhage, which has been, um, you know, a little bit tweaked over the years to be a, make it a little more user friendly. It's more about the trends than it is absolute values. But when we have a patient who's hypotensive and tachycardic, the cat's already out of the bag. That patient is already in shock and they're manifesting the late stages of shock because their blood pressure and all their compensatory mechanisms have now kind of fallen by the wayside. It's for those patients that we have to ask ourselves the question, what what can we do? Because we do know they need, probably need an operation. Okay, we've stabilized them with tourniquets. We've maybe junctional, junctional tourniquets, another thing if we have time to talk about. I'm sure you have other podcasts on that. But really, can we give them something besides crystalloids, which provide no oxygen transport? They often will dilute out the remaining coagulation factors. And yes, they may falsely raise the blood pressure. I say falsely because it's very transient. They may provide a little more volume, but there's no oxygen carrying capacity and there's nothing to protect the patient from further exsanguination. In fact, it could exacerbate that. So we've moved away from the past where I was trained and probably, I'm sure, Rob, you as well. You know, others, when we were first learning this stuff, we gave a lot of fluids and 
you know, leaders of crystalloid, lactated ringers, saline. But to get back to your question, you know, I think if you're going to choose something that's going to really get your biggest bang for your buck, certainly whole blood would be great. We just put that on our helicopters and we're behind in the state of Maryland on that, just to be clear, we're behind, but we did get that done. We just started that a couple of weeks ago. Other systems have gone all the way to whole blood and why whole blood? Whole blood has the clotting factors. It has your platelets in there. You don't have to separate the components like other ways we do that in the hospital where we give a pack of red cells, a pack of fresh frozen plasma to give the clotting factors back. And then, oh, by the way, platelets, because platelets are really not in plasma. All that stuff separated out when they store it in a blood bank. But I think whole blood is great, and we do need to do more studies on it. The literature is not crystal clear quite yet, although there's a lot of work underway. I would go back to something simpler, though, and you mentioned plasma. I think plasma is a reasonable thing if you're trying to look at this in a system. We talk about this in the chapter, and we talk about you know um, the fact that plasma is a great volume expander. That's not the only reason we use it. It doesn't have any oxygen carrying capacity, but it does provide and replenish some of the factors that are getting washed away or used that help form a blood clot. So it can help a patient. And importantly, it can protect the inner walls of your blood vessels and cells, which break down when they're deprived of oxygen. So in other words, it can protect the endothelium. There's a lot of data on that. And if you were going to talk to other prominent trauma surgeons and resuscitationists, many of them would argue that if you're going to pick the one fluid and you don't have whole blood to give, it's probably plasma. It's probably plasma that we really want to look at and because it expands the volume. It does all the stuff that we would get with that transient crystalloid effect, probably lasts longer, but more importantly, addresses that uh, the coagulation cascade that's starting to get perturbed. So, uh, but there's other things we could talk. There's also other fluids that are in development, which we don't talk about. And, but I think if we're going to talk about um, giving a fluid, like that would be the ideal is to give some resuscitative component that really addresses the underlying pathophysiology, which we talk about a lot in chapter. Great. Um, before we go to the break, I'm just got a couple of points to come back back at you. Sure. I, I just remembered the, the the really snappy acronym of the trial we were doing, which was COMBAT, Control of Major Bleeding After Trauma. That's really cool because it was a DOD-funded trial, so let's call it COMBAT. Nice. Part and parcel of that was a discussion I had with a trauma surgeon at a Level 1 trauma center who said, no names, no locations, but uh, if you're that close to the Level 1 trauma center, don't worry about the blood because we're going to do a transfusion anyway. What do you say to that? Or how do you respond to that? Yeah, I, I would I would challenge that. I would challenge that because the problem is every minute that your your cells are deprived of oxygen, there's damage. Some of that damage can be irreparable or irrever irreversible. We talk about an oxygen debt and an oxygen deficit. There's a deficit which is survivable. We talk about the oxygen equation. You can read all about that in the chapter, but really the bottom line there is the deficit's something we want to address. And Sure, when we get to the trauma center, we will address that deficit. We should be doing that. But once they get into the debt, it's not like going to the bank where you can just pay that debt back. That debt is really permanent. I mean, there's could be permanent damage that occurs there. It's not like, oh, yeah, we'll just give them some more blood on the back end and pay back the debt. The debt is really kind of a misnomer. It's really the deficit, and we want to address that because once we get to a debt, the debt is the debt. It's damage. We should really call that damage, not a debt. 
So um, to your point, I would support exactly what you said. We should be looking for ways, especially in systems where we don't. So in Maryland, we, we're, we're a little spoiled. We can get a lot of our patients, if the weather's good, in a helicopter into our trauma center in 30 minutes. But we're a small state. We're a really small state. And yeah, we have seven helicopters, which are paid for by the taxpayers. So that is not a system you have in a lot of other places in the world even. And there's maybe cases, many cases where patients are injured far, far away from trauma centers. And so this whole concept of understanding what shock is and how to treat it, including giving early blood component products, is absolutely foundational to improve survival. Hemorrhage is still a leading cause of death. Trauma is a leading cause of death under age 45. And, and we're not even touching on the other forms of shock in this chapter, but we're really focusing on the big one that we can really make an impact in the field on being hemorrhagic shock. But boy, you know, what an opportunity we have to really get at that oxygen deficit early on. And there's lots of things we can do in 2023 and beyond now, which we do talk about. And I was really glad that they didn't ask us to back off and say, oh, you know what, let's keep PHTLS nice and uh, cut and dry, EMT basic level. No, they, we, you, NAEMT pushed us to really continue the, the legacy of this chapter, which Dr. Manifold had established and others to make this a very, this is a very, you got some really good pathophysiology in this chapter and some really good evidence on latest interventions. And I love that because I'm a firm believer that we should be teaching to the top of the certification licensure for every pre-hospital clinician and more. They can take what they need and bring it to their practice but I'd rather have them armed with more knowledge, not less. That, I know I'm, I may be in the minority for some people on that, but I, I really believe you know going all the way into the pathophys can really be helpful. And I find the, the best paramedics are the ones that really um, that that really resonates with them. Great. Well, uh, I am a good, I am still a good friend and admirer of uh, of Craig Manifold, and uh, I guess my claim to fame is we were chatting actually about uh, the ketamine, um, let's call it debacle in Colorado, right? And uh-huh. uh, uh, he yeah. was a, a great advocate, and we recorded stuff and put stuff out. Sadly, days before he he left us. Um, yeah. But for the minute, I'm just going to take a break where I will read how you can get hold of uh, the P- PHPLS new edition. And uh, then when we come back, we'll continue our discussion uh, with Dr. Sam Galvano. Over three decades ago, PHTLS, pre-hospital trauma life support, transformed the assessment and management of trauma patients in the field, improving quality of trauma patient care and saving lives around the world. The 10th edition of this trusted, comprehensive resource continues the PHTLS mission to promote excellence in trauma patient management by all pre-hospital care practitioners through global education. In the field, seconds count. The 10th edition of PHTLS Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support teaches and reinforces the principles of rapidly assessing a trauma patient using an orderly approach immediately treating life-threatening problems as they are identified and minimizing delays in initiating transport to an appropriate destination. To order your copy today, visit psglearning.com or follow the link in the show notes. 
So don't forget, NAMT Radio is available wherever you get your podcasts. But to name a few, we're on Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcasts, and even on iHeartRadio. Can you believe that? Um, if you're enjoying the show, take a moment to rate and review us on the platform you're listening to us on. And if you have a comment, you can get in touch on email at NAMTRadio at NAMT. Uh, I'm having a great discussion uh, with Dr. Sam Galvanio. Thank you for uh, for bearing with us during the break there. But uh, let's talk about, uh, I, I mentioned control of uh, bleeding. Let's talk about tourniquets, tourniquets, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're listening to us on. Uh, <laughs> and also, of course, there are, you know, basic tourniquet techniques there's junctional you know junctional bleeding we need to talk about that and obviously devices and so again you know let's let's keep it at the sort of basic level so let's talk about devices and then techniques of course i i guess just to say one thing because this is something when i wear my anesthesiologist or my trauma anesthesiologist hat and we've got like a significant uh, long extremity fracture that requires significant reconstruction or or you know, hemostatic control in the operating room. Just be aware. We put tourniquets on. I'm just talking now. I'm just talking regular arterial tourniquets. Let's just, just to make one quick comment about that. And we talk about this in the book too. We have a, a paragraph or two on this, but really we put these things up for 120 to 150 minutes. Now I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we should encourage everyone to strap a tourniquet on if there's a, a, a fingernail that's off partially and oozing. But, you know, if we, if we do have reasonable suspicion, there's, you know, significant extremity trauma that's causing hemorrhage leading to shock, then we should place a tourniquet. And you shouldn't feel bad about that. Our police officers shouldn't feel bad about that. Our bystanders shouldn't. That's really the foundation of the stop to bleed campaign by the American College of Surgeons, et cetera. And so I think we know that in EMS, but just keep in mind, we put tourniquets on for 120 to 150 minutes in the operating room. We watch it closely and we do not see significant nerve or muscle damage. So in suburban or rural settings where you may have really long transport times, nobody should feel bad about doing this. And we've seen this in the military as well, where we've had prolonged application times because we've had to. So that's one, just one comment, um, Rob, on, on the tourniquets or tourniquets. I like that. I like the tourniquet. That makes, that sounds cool. I, I, my UK colleagues, that's what they always, how they, how they say it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I, I said tourniquet yes, in England and they go, no, no, you mean a tourniquet old chap. So I have to, I have to, to speak transatlantically occasionally. <laughs> I think if you say tourniquet, then that means you're a more worldly EMS clinician because it shows that you're, you know, really, you know, have been to Europe and. Uh, seeing how our our brothers and sisters over there do it, which they're really high speed. I mean, I, I love those folks. To get into the junctional hemorrhage control, and this we could talk for about an hour. I'm sure you probably have other podcasts or future podcasts that will address this. But in brief, in brief, extremity trauma is not as hard if you do a good exam to find. It's that junctional hemorrhage that's really challenging, especially if you're not near a trauma center because that's what'll kill a patient. And we're talking about injuries to the groin, up near the armpit, the axilla, maybe the shoulder or the neck. These are not areas where we can really easily always control hemorrhage. Now, fortunately, and where do we see a lot of this? I, I will admit, and so would Dr. Manifold, and he saw plenty of these injuries in his time, you know, working in this critical care transport teams and et cetera. We saw a lot of this with improvised explosive devices. We had good body armor, but it didn't cover those areas. And we would see these hemorrhages and deaths from these um, injuries. And so a number of devices have been developed 
I won't list them all, but I do think that's it's something you can look at. We have a figure that shows things like the SAM junctional tourniquet. There's the combat medical systems uh, manufacturers, a combat ready clamp. There's the jet, which is North American rescue products. I don't have any stock interest in any of these. I'm, I'm very agnostic. I think they all warrant um, continued study. We do use some of these products because they are more applicable and easier to do than doing like an endovascular technique in the field. But we're talking about doing that, but that's very advanced. But I think uh, junctional hemorrhage is still a big problem. It's a big problem. And if we don't have ways to control the hemorrhage, we can certainly do all the things we were talking about before and resuscitate. But if if we just keep pouring product into a hole that's still not closed up, we're going to be in trouble. So junctional hemorrhage control is really important. And I think we need to keep, all keep our eyes out for more devices. I guess a, a final comment to make about some of the junctional, junctional hemorrhage devices would be when we apply some of these devices for lower injuries like the groin, um, just keep in mind, you know, it's it, it actually there's some evidence that they may exacerbate hemorrhage in some in some regard. So we do have to keep an eye on the literature on that. It depends on the device. And, you know, we're 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 actually studying one of these at, at Shock Trauma. We're about to do a, a field study where we're going to look at this and probably actually use it in the hospital a little bit. We'll see if, you know, we have some ideas on how we can do that compared to uh, endovascular techniques, which we use a lot of at shock trauma in particular. But I think for, for, our, for our street folks that are out there in the field, our field clinicians, you're not going to be able to put a Rebo in very easily. It's really challenging. We may get there someday, and, and trust me, we're working on that. But what I'm talking about is a resuscitative endovascular occlusion device that you would insert through an artery. That's a big time procedure. And I've seen surgeons, very good surgeons, have challenges getting that in. Um, and, and myself being trained in that, I don't do it hardly ever, but uh, that is a skill that skill set that I've trained on. And I will tell you that it's very challenging. So having these junctional hemorrhage control devices is a really uh, enticing, uh, enticing technique to have because junctional hemorrhage still kills a lot of patients. That's great. We were talking uh, in the break about uh, I, I saw some police colleagues applying a tourniquet to to something that was clearly higher and maybe junctional, and so I think there's possibly a training gap that we can we can need to address with uh, with our public safety folk as well. I mean, credit to all of them for carrying tourniquets now and for being very willing to use them. Uh, now I think we've got you know their attention shall we say we need to get into the more uh, in some 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 more detailed technique but you know when it's not just a, a i hate to say this but a good old-fashioned limb right so we need to just yeah to think about yeah that. yeah yes indeed as we come up to time this is my standard rob ending question uh doctor so is there anything i've forgotten to ask or anything you need to tell us well i think you know our we're really proud of the chapter. Again, it, this is this chapter was really um, a major revision to add more knowledge to what was already put forth, which was really great material. And I think I'm really proud that the textbook took it to that level. So I would just reiterate that a lot of good stuff there. I'd encourage everyone to really take a look at the chapter. And I found, I'll be honest, I, that's why I jumped at the chance. I'm very busy. I've got a lot of research and a lot of clinical work. But boy, when I was asked to contribute to this book, I remember taking this course as a Actually, an EMT, I wasn't even a paramedic yet. I took a version of this course and it changed my entire approach to how I, even to this day, assess patients. So I think I'm just want you to hear loud and clear that I'm a huge fan of this. I'm a huge fan of PHTLS. I think, I think it's honestly, it was easy for me to transfer that skill to ATLS, where I've now been an instructor for the last decade. 
because it's very similar in the approach. So that basic approach that you learn in the course is vital for your whole career. You know, looking into the future, there's a lot of cool stuff that we'll have it someday. We've been working on blood substitutes for a long time. I said, not me personally, although one of my colleagues at Maryland is a big time researcher on this. His name's actually Dr. 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 So keep, stay tuned for more of that research. Uh, We have yet to find a hemoglobin based oxygen carrier that we've been able to develop that's safe for human use, but we're not stopping because if we have that, that will be a game changer. Same with some other hemostatic agents. We could talk for an hour on TXA and other agents that we're going to be developing and giving. But, you know, I think the bottom line that won't change is the pathophysiology of shock is not going to change. That's the pathophysiology that occurs when you bleed. So if you learn this stuff, this will be something you can keep with yourself the rest of your career. And then think about the different pathophysiologic aspects that we can manipulate going forward. Uh, So I think that's exciting. And I think that also is something that I know is of interest to many of my EMS clinicians across the world. Great. Well, I think uh, you've been successful in raising a level of anticipation that folks should get this textbook. They should uh, take in the chapter and digest um, the lessons and uh, notes that you've you've given us. Um, The links to the textbook will be in the show notes, as will all of your mnemonics as well. So thank you for for giving us those. Um, How can we follow or get in touch with you if we need to? Sure. Uh, I, I will be happy to give my email. That's a great way. My school medicine email, It's uh, I can give it to you, Rob. It's sgelvagno at som.umaryland.edu. But you can also just Google Galvano. There's not many Galvanos in the world. There is a character in Spider-Man, which is on Spider-Man 227, if anyone wants to know. So I'm technically part of the Marvel in, uh, universe, but uh, that's the only place you'll see a Galvano. It's a pretty rare name. So if you just Google that, you'll see my email. Feel free to email me if you've got questions. You know, I, I uh, really do prioritize that stuff because I my heart and soul is in EMS. It always will be. So uh, happy to have you reach. I also have a website, mdaniscrit.com. That has also some EMS stuff related as well as critical care and anesthesia. It's M-D-A-N-E-S-C-R-I-T.com. It's just a very simple website that also um, has ways for you to contact me if you'd like. Great. Well, we're going to put all of those links in the show notes. Um, you're right. We could be talking for hours, actually. And uh, <laughs> perhaps you can come back and, and, and talk some more. I would love to. Thank you very much indeed. Um, So I'd just like to thank my guest, Dr. Samuel L. Galvano, Dr. Colonel, and a man clearly with a spidey sense as well. So uh, just establish that at the end. Uh, We hope to have him back on NEMT Radio. Uh, Don't forget that NEMT Radio episodes come out, so we do about two a month, unless we have a special as well. So uh, there's a few in the catalogue now. Uh, Do look out for them. Do read back. They're all as good as they were the day we recorded them. Um, And we have a lot more coming up. But uh, don't forget to get your copy of uh, PHTLS, uh, the new edition. Um, Links are in the show notes. uh, Links are in the ads. Links are everywhere, in fact. Um, So for the moment, uh, this has been NEMT Radio. I've been your host, Rob Lawrence. And until next time, bye for now.